Okay, at this time, we're blessed to have our second message for today, brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled Jesus and Tradition. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. Um... And so as Matthew just uh, pointed out, the title of this message today is Jesus and Tradition. And so uh, we know that tradition as human beings, it's something that we're probably all familiar with. Uh, Pretty much from the beginning of time, humans have held different traditions. And so when we think about that word, there's a lot of different things that probably comes to our mind, a lot of different definitions. But just looking at a quick one, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It defines the word tradition as an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior. And oftentimes, they're associated with religion or social. And so we have different traditions in probably various aspects of our life. Uh, Family traditions. I know that, and as Art just talked about today, a little bit on Thanksgiving, coming up this next Thursday. It's Thanksgiving week. Uh... Many of us might have Thanksgiving traditions, you know, ways that we go about to observe that holiday. And and, and most of us would probably agree in here that that's a a good tradition. It's a wholesome tradition that has a lot of biblical and godly principles about it. Of course, it's not commanded in the Bible. There's parts of the world that just obviously, you know, most, most of the world, if you think about it, probably do not do anything to observe Thanksgiving because it's primarily an American thing. But nevertheless, we probably have certain things that we do for Thanksgiving. Maybe there are certain things we do for Mother or Father's Day. Uh, Or maybe there's other things that we can think about on what we do as a family. Even organizations or businesses or towns sometimes have traditions. I know that I grew grew up in Bixby. I still live there. And there's a tradition every year that they have this festival in the middle of the summer called the Green Corn Festival. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the same thing that like Broken Arrow does rooster days and then every town kind of has something like that and it's a tradition and, and people when you talk to them about it, you know, they don't want it to be changed. They don't want anyone to mess with that tradition. And we can understand that. We can maybe as humans appreciate that because there's some things that's good about tradition that kind of helps, you know, it's, it's, it's a tool in which maybe helps humans pass things on. But sometimes tradition isn't so good. Because sometimes they can be such the center, especially in religion, they become such a center of focus that we actually focus and, and, and worship and the, the, the tradition itself rather than what the tradition is trying to point to. And we know that Jesus... If he was anything, he was a mover and a shaker when it came to dealing with tradition, specifically among the religious leaders of his contemporaries. And so we're going to go to Matthew, the ninth chapter, and we're going to look at something that I've actually preached on before, but as I was just recently, you know, when you, and and all the speakers can kind of probably attested this, when you, when you come to come up with a message, you know, a topic, and you know, we all have our different things that we do, there might be something that's just pressing on our hearts, there might be a certain situation that we've went through recently, 
And for me, one of the things that I kind of have noticed in my personal life as far as work and things like that is, is dealing with some of the aspects of, you know, the older generation and the younger generation. And I kind of touched a little bit upon that last message as far as like we look at, you know, sometimes we can be guilty as the older generation looking at the younger generation as, you know, having it so easy, they don't have respect for certain things, and sometimes maybe that can be true. But we're going to look at something that Jesus did or, or said in Matthew the ninth chapter, verses 14 through 17. Jesus, picking up in chapter 9, says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do, we do, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away <clears throat> from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the path patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. And we'll understand what this analogy is in just a minute. Or else <clears throat> the wineskin break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And so right here, this is a passage that's in Matthew, but it's also in Luke. We have John the Baptist's disciples coming and having a question about fasting. Now we know what fasting is. We see this is something that we do every year. We know that we do fasting on the Day of Atonement. We know that the, the Bible has different applications of fasting. And it's something that's promoted throughout the Bible. But it's interesting because right here in Matthew the ninth chapter before this, Jesus was doing some things that a lot of people thought were strange for a leader during this period of time. For example, he heals someone who is sick and tells them that their sins are forgiven. Something kind of off-putting to a lot of the religious leaders and something that many people never heard an actual individual forgive sins before. We also see that Jesus, as a religious leader, he dines with tax collectors, the like ultimate enemy of Jews during this day. Jesus does a lot of things differently, and it makes people start questioning him. And so John the Baptist, during this time, he's already been arrested. Remember, he's arrested. He comes before Jesus. And his followers here are asking him about fasting. And it almost in a way, when you read it, you can read it one of two ways. You can say, well, they're just, they're just curious. You know, why don't you do these things? But if you look at a lot of the historical context, it seems that John the Baptist's followers were kind of, critiquing Jesus. And not only that, when you look at Luke, Luke has a parallel uh, part to this. So, for example, we have the synoptics. So Luke also covers this story as well. Luke says it's the Pharisees and John's disciples. And so most likely it's the same. It's one occasion. It's not two different times that two different people are coming to him, but it's probably the same thing. So Matthew says John's disciples, but Luke also includes the Pharisees in this. And we know that there's many examples of fasting in the Old Testament. But historically, we can look at some sources like Edersheim. Maybe you've heard of him before. He's uh, someone who is, wrote quite a few years ago now, but he wrote a lot about the traditions in Jesus' day. 
the traditions of how they went about doing things, specifically Jews, during like the first century and within Judaism during that time. And Edersheim noted that zealous Pharisees, and maybe you've heard this before, fasted twice a week, usually on Mondays and Thursdays. And they would do this between the weeks between Passover and Pentecost, so you've got that 50-day, that seven-week period, and also between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. So right now, of course, the Feast of Dedication is a winter thing, and they're we don't, not something that we observe as Christians. But during this period of time, they did. And, of course, it's morphed into other things, as we know. This time would be a time that Jews, this time of year, that Jews would fast between uh, on the days of uh, Thursday and Mondays. The reason that we see this and the reason this became a tradition was because there was an idea that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai on a Thursday and had come down on a Monday. And so you read some of the passages, like for example, we're not going to turn there, Luke the 18th chapter, verse 12, the righteous Pharisee, who says, you know, he's talking about what he does, and one of the things he mentions is, I fast twice a week in his prayer. He's referring to that tradition of fasting twice a week. So in responding to this, Jesus gives three analogies, three examples, and he's trying to hit at something, and we're going to look at them, kind of look at the historical part of it, and then we're going to come back and ask, what are the implications for these three analogies, because I think we could apply them in a multitude of ways. The first thing he gives us is the example of a bridegroom. And we know that in the Old Testament, the idea of a groom was oftentimes, like in Hosea and Isaiah, as well as many others, applied to the Lord God Almighty, to God himself. Coming into the New Testament, we know that the idea of groom came to describe the Messiah's coming. Even John the Baptist himself, and John... The third chapter, verse 29, we'll just turn there real quick. Think about who he's talking to. Jesus is talking to John's disciples, obviously probably the Pharisees as well. But he uses even an example that, the Fer or that John's disciples would understand because something John says in John 3, 29 says, He who had the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And so we have this idea now developing in the New Testament that Jesus is this groom. And of course, we know it will continue to develop. And we can look at all the way from other places in Matthew, Matthew 22nd chapter, the 25th chapter, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, I promise, Paul says, I promised you, talking about the people he's writing to, in marriage to one husband, that husband being Christ, all the way down to the book of Revelation, where we see in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 7, there's this idea of the lamb being in marriage with the bride. And so we see that Jesus, you know, as the New Testament develops, he's using this example of the bridegroom, and he's trying to give them a little information and explain why he and his disciples are not fasting. Because Jesus comes back with a question can friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Let's just think about it this way. You're in the first century. And finally, the Messiah. Now, most people do not recognize Jesus during this time as a Messiah. He's got a small little following. But he's starting to do these things. He's starting to preach about the kingdom of God. Can friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? And he's asking this question, look, I'm here, I've come. Of course, he is sometimes disguised, disguises his messiahship. He disguises the plan, and we, we understand we can 
talk about why he did that. Because he doesn't reveal it all at once. But he gives this example. Can friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the question is obviously, that would be inappropriate. This Greek word, friends of the bridegroom, is actually literally sons of the wedding hall. And it's just simply an idiom referring to the wedding guests or friends of the bridegroom present at the wedding. And he's, he's liking that basically to his fellow, fellow Jews and, of course, his disciples as well. That they're friends at this wedding feast. And a wedding feast is a time of celebration. It's not a time of mourning. It's a time of celebration. And today we know that weddings are a time of celebration. Weddings are wonderful things. They're monumental things in people's lives. They're one of the most important day in a person's life oftentimes. And we celebrate and we have our own ways of doing it. But even in, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in, in ancient days, it was probably celebrated even more because we even have examples in the Bible like in Judges, the 14th chapter, where it talks about weddings lasting a whole week. And we understand that we don't quite do that anymore, at least in our Western culture, but it's definitely something that was... Uh, very common in the ancient world. just want to read a quote real quick. This comes from Mark Strauss, who is a biblical commentator. And he wrote in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. He says, Though wedding customs of this day are not fully known, certain features seem clear. The bridegroom went out to receive his bride from her parents' home and, br- uh, and bring her to his home, with friends and family joining in joyful procession, as you can see in Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 1 through 13. This was followed by the marriage feast and eventually the consummation of the marriage in the bridal chamber. Mourning or fasting was unthinkable during such a time of celebration. So Jesus is saying that I'm here. Why would they fast? And it's interesting because we look at fasting in all different ways. And I was thinking about this. You know, we fast now. We, Jesus actually says there will come a time where he, he'll be taken away. And it'll be appropriate to fast. And we see that actually happens. Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the grave and then ascends to heaven. And he's taken from the disciples. And we do see in the book of Acts many examples of the disciples. The very disciples that John was questioning Jesus about fasting. And so that's the first thing that Jesus says. The second example that he gives is the patch of unshrunk cloth. And so I'm not... You know, it's, I remember as a kid, I used, used to have uh, jeans, and they would have holes in them. And I remember my, mo- my mo- mother putting a patch on those jeans. Uh, I vaguely remember that. And I don't really feel like I see that very much anymore. But it's just a very basic concept. Because Jesus is saying, like, look, hey, you wouldn't do this. Just like you wouldn't mourn or do something that's a sign of mourning at a time of celebration. So you wouldn't put a piece of a new patch on some old cloth. Now we could probably get this concept that you know when we have an old pair of jeans or old pair old shirt whatever it's kind of worn out right it's stretched and all that and when you wash it, it doesn't shrink as much as it used to but new cloth cloth that hasn't been used before it really shrinks and so Jesus obviously the, the purpose of a patch is simple you put a patch on something on some cloth to fix a hole a cut a rip a tear but in this instance, if you were to put a new patch, a piece of new cloth, and patch it onto some old garment, that new patch is going to shrink when it gets washed, and it's going to pull on that old worn-out garment and make the hole even worse. And so people that heard this would have easily understood this. 
The last example is the new and old wineskins. Now, this is something that has a lot of historical uh, aspects to because this is, you know, they didn't have bottles and barrels. They might have, and they're not quite like they are now. But wineskins usually were what were used to store wine. Oftentimes, they were the, basically the bladder or the exterior of an animal of some sort. They would cut the head off. They would essentially, they would, you know, take all the entrails out. They would have a way of, you know, doing that. And they would use these wineskins, whether it be a bladder of an animal or something like that, to pour wine in. And it's obviously something that, you know, probably is not the most pleasant uh, thought in our uh, 21st century way of thinking. But that's basically, they were bags made of skin or leather and used for storing wine in New Testament times. New wine, of course, we understand that. New wine, it would continue to ferment. So new wines continuing to ferment, and ferment means it's going to continue to expand. And anything you put it in, it's going to stretch. Well, old wine skins, after being used for a long time, would become hard and brittle and would lose their elasticity and would burst with anything being put in it that's going to continue to expand. But a new wine skin, it's going to still have its elasticity. It's going to be able to contain that new wine, even though that new wine is continuing to expand, it's going to be able to withstand the stretching that new wine would have. And so we have to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus saying? It's really basic at the outset. You know, one of the things that Jesus is saying is basically, he's simply being asked why he did not conform to specific religious traditions that was common not just to the Pharisees, but even John's disciples. And a simple question or answer to that, simple response is that Jesus' first response is that it's inappropriate to engage in the practice of fasting, which is often associated with something that you would do to draw closer to God, which is a great thing, in a time of mourning, in a time of loss, in a time of trial, and things like that. When you actually are at the celebration period of time where the Messiah is present. The Messiah has come. The Messianic age has come. And simply, Jesus was telling them, that's why they don't fast. But there's a little bit more to that. There's this analogy that I think we have to understand, and we obviously we have to, you know, we have to travel 2,000 plus years or give or take, or a little bit less actually, not plus, but to, to, to understand how do we apply this to our days? Because I think what Jesus was dealing with was how tradition can blind us. How they can be blinders to seeing the truth sometimes. Like the old wineskins, the traditional interpretation of Jesus' contemporaries had become so inflexible that the real messianic age that was upon them was unable to fit into the preconceptions of the day. Literally, they had become so entrenched in their own ideas that they could not recognize the truth and the truth was right in front of them and the truth was doing wondrous miracles and they couldn't recognize it Jesus' teaching simply did not fit the bill of what they always expected the Messiah to do, to be and how to act like the old wineskins they had lost their elasticity there was just simply no more room for understanding and growth. 
They went around. Of course, fasting is something good. We're going to get to that in a minute about how even though this is something good, we can sometimes turn good things into things that get us off track. But there's many examples. They're just biblical texts that we can read. Luke 5, verse 39 is an example. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is good enough. And it's kind of like that old adage, it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. Matthew 9, verse 17, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. That's interesting that he says this because he's touching upon something that you try to put new wine into old wineskins, guess what's going to happen? It's going to burst that old wineskin and that brand new wine is going to just fall out onto the ground and be useless, be ruined. You see, we, we actually see examples of this happening after Jesus dies and resurrects and ascends to heaven in the biblical account. I mean, we oftentimes get frustrated with like the book of Galatians, for example, right? We know that Paul says some things that are difficult to understand. And I think it's very clear and, and I'm, it, it, to me uh, in searching the scriptures, and I'm not just saying this, that Paul nor Jesus nor any of the other writers ever did anything to make less important the law, the Old Testament, the words of God, the actual Bible, the, 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 the canon. Now they did, of course, the traditions of man. But we look and see how like even the first Christians, there was that period of time where it was hard to kind of give up some of those traditions, right? Some of those ideas of Judaism, of like what was required of a Christian. Well, you had to be circumcised still. Well, you might have been baptized, you might have repented of your sins and things like that, but if you're not physically in this position, if you're not physically fit, Okay, with these requirements, you can't have salvation. And so we see Paul deals with that. And we see that the book of Acts deals with that. None of which, in my opinion, has anything to do with the actual law of God and how it's applied and how it still remains something relevant to Christians. But we definitely see examples of people trying to get new wine and putting it into old wineskins. Another thing that's interesting is that in recent years we can... Think of all different examples of this, whether it be in the world of like scholarship or even within the world of our church, you know, or even our own personal church tradition, where people start having questions of Jesus' Messiahship and whether or not he fits the bill of what they think the Messiah is supposed to be based upon their interpretations of what the Old Testament says has to happen. Now, all of us would probably agree that what the Old Testament says is God's word. But our interpretation of what the Old Testament says sometimes is not equal to the text in and of itself. We are human. We're subject to sometimes, obviously, making a mistake. And sometimes our interpretations can be incorrect. And I think that this is something that Jesus' contemporaries and his disciples later even dealt with. The questions of Jesus' Messiahship, the legitimacy of Paul's teaching even, and the authenticity of the New Testament have come to be raised in recent years, even within our own church tradition. Usually at the core of these objections, though, is the same idea, even though it's a little bit different, but it's a similar idea, because it's all about this is how we think of things and how things are supposed to be, and it's not in line with that. Therefore, I don't reject or ever consider rejecting maybe my interpretation or reevaluating, it's always I reject him being able to be the Messiah. I reject it. It doesn't fit the traditional way that the Messiah is supposed to be. 
according to whether it be Jewish thought, rabbinic thought, or whatever. One aspect that I think, though, that is oftentimes ignored is that the disciples themselves dealt with the same issue. And even before they got the Holy Spirit, they even had some of these same objections. You see, Jesus took a group of men, right? Okay, and there were women followers as well. They weren't part of the twelve, but had an exterior, you know, wasn't, it was the twelve, the main twelve, but there was other people on the outskirts that were looking in and following this new movement, the Jesus movement. Even though it wasn't real big, they weren't in the inner discussions, obviously. But we see that they have these questions that Jesus would do certain things. They'd be like, why, why is he doing this? They would ask him questions that would seem to be like in line with Jewish thinking or the way that they thought of the Messiah because they would ask things like, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Even after Jesus dies, we know that Jesus' disciples are like, man, that was a waste. Three and a half years. Three and a half years, I wonder if I can go get my, my fishing business back. Maybe I can, you know, go be a beggar or something. I, I, who knows what was going through their mind, but we do know as we look at the scriptures, there does seem to be an indication that they felt like what they, they were sad, but they thought it was over. They thought it was over and they didn't believe the words of Jesus or they couldn't understand them. They couldn't fully understand them during the time. So Jesus raises, rises from the dead. And of course, there's a lot of reasons back then people outside of Jesus' inner group, the disciples, rejected Jesus. He didn't fit the bill in all different ways. They even look at him and say, you're from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's the backwoodsy northern you know, we don't even know if they're Jewish. They're just, they're just up there. They, they speak funny and things like that. They're not down here close to Judea and Jerusalem where the, you know, the real you know, religious, pious people are like the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and things like that. And so they would reject him for that, but they would also reject him for his teachings because he would teach things. He would, he would criticize them on how much they focused on their traditions and, and how much they focused on essentially the, the outer exterior of everything and how everything looked. Didn't matter what was in here, as long as everything on the outside looked okay, that's, that's what they focused on. And so we see that even Jesus' disciples, they weren't quite like that. Even after, though, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he's with them, he says, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Because they had that mindset of, hey, the kingdom, and they were partly right. They were partly right because the, the, the scriptures... In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, does describe a Messiah that's going to come back in glory and power. But what they didn't understand was is that it also describes a suffering servant. One that's going to bear the sins for all mankind. And so we see that what changed their mind was two things. The resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because what we have to realize and we have to come to when it comes to these questions is, is that you can have this interpretation, you can have that interpretation, but I'm going to say that the guy who died and rose from the grave and every historical point of evidence actually points that direction, I'm going to go with him and say that I must be the one who needs to reevaluate how I understand how this guy or how this person is supposed to be and act and say and things like that. That's what the heart of Christianity is. In fact, if you read, I know we, we read the Bible so much, and, and not that I'm, I have some knowledge that you don't. We all have the same 
perspectives in, in a lot of ways. But when we sometimes I think we, we read so closely that we get into the uh, the, the, the real you know inner intricacies of the scriptures. That sometimes if we just step step back and look at like the the whole of what's being said by people like Paul, who's the ultimate apologist, who's going around and of course he's primarily focused on Gentiles, but he's also being an apologist to Jews. And he's, he's trying to answer their questions. And in a nutshell, when you look at it, his question is simple, or his answer is simple. Look, I'm preaching to you, Jesus died and was resurrected. We can think about all kinds. Okay, that needs to be the first thing that needs to be established. Okay, after this, this is the core. We can now have a discussion about how we were wrong on how we interpret the Messiah is supposed to be. But at the core... It was almost as if the disciples were like, look, hey, we get it. We thought that too. But he rose from the dead. So a rational brain's thinking, we better go with the guy who died and rose from the dead. And not only did that, but rose into the heavens. And there's no evidence for his body or anything like that. All that points towards him raising from the dead. So we can see this. And, of course, I've kind of harped on that just a little bit longer. But when it comes to tradition, you know, we're in the Church of God tradition. We have a lot of history, different organizations, people that we have brethren with that are in different groups. And, and of course, there might have been history where most everyone was together. But we know that not just the Church of God tradition, but, you know, all the other denominations have their traditions as well. But I think there's a lot we can get from this because I think that it's foolish for us to think that we can't fall into the same trap. You know, Jewish people that Jesus was talking to, it wasn't because they were Jewish. It wasn't this thing that Jewish people are bad, like, you know, which is obviously a, a horrendous and evil way of thinking about a group of people. It, it was literally just a, a, an example of human nature. Because all the other groups do it as well. It's not because they're Jewish. It's because it's a human problem. It's, this, it's a problem of thinking that we can figure it out, that we, that we have somehow, we're the gatekeepers of truth. That's what humans do sometimes, especially in religion, that you have to go through us in order to get to God. That if your traditions or things that you do do not line up to what they're supposed to be, the way we're basically telling you it's supposed to be, it becomes almost like a litmus test of who is truly someone who is of God. Now, in our tradition, we understand that there's all different kinds of traditions. Some of them are really good. Some of them, I think, are wonderful. They're not scripture, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad. We have a potluck every single time we have a holy day except for the Day of Atonement. I think that's a wonderful tradition. I think it facilitates fellowship. I think it facilitates us getting to know each other better and, 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 and becoming stronger together. That's a great tradition, in my opinion. Now, of course, if we came in here and we basically thought that the potluck was like the 11th commandment. And we would like chastise people outside our church that didn't do that. Then we would have a problem. I don't think anyone does that. This is the way prophecy has to be. It's another one. Unfortunately, this is everywhere. People get those itching ears and they want prophecy to basically be delineated down to a timeline. And everyone needs to believe this. And, and, and this is how it has to be. This is the traditional way that we look at it. This is the only way to keep the Sabbath. This is the only Bible translation you can use. This is the only format for church services. And the list goes on. We could sit here up for days. But at the end of the day, I don't think it has necessarily, there's no limit. And all of these things can be okay 
if we have the right mindset. Be careful to allow traditions to become so strong in our lives that we allow them to become old, worn-out wineskins and able to accommodate new understandings or blind us to the truth. Traditions can be important and good, but only if we continually recognize them as tools to help facilitate our worship, not the object of our worship themselves. And so as we move on, there's one more thing I want to kind of cover. And that is this idea that tradition, even the things that God gives us, can be transformed into old pieces of cloth and wineskins. You know, we look at exactly what Jesus was questioned about by John the Baptist. We know that fasting is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. There's a biblical principle about it. But the way in which they were going about it and using it as a litmus test for whether or not someone's truly of God or on the right path was the problem. A few years ago, I did a sermon called uh, Church Idols. And I had come across this, uh, uh, this article written called Three Common Idols in Church. And it was written by a guy by the name of Eric Geiger, who at the time was the vice president of the church resource division at Lifeway Christian Resources. And uh, in that message, which I got a lot of it from that article, and I kind of just expounded upon some of the ideas. And basically, he talks about the three idols of church, the, the, the church, the place, and like the traditions. Or we, you know, basically the traditions, the way they go about doing things. Okay, uh, And so, in that though, he brings out something really interesting. And it's in the Bible, and we're going to look at it. And he brings out this story about Moses and Hezekiah. Of course, they have relation to each other as far as like, you know, they're both, you know, Israelites. And of course, Hezekiah would become a king. But Moses was this person who established this uh, thing within Israel. And we have all probably read a little bit about it. But it has a lot to do with idolatry. And at the end of the day, it, 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 when we think about tradition... And we think about what many people do with tradition, even the Jews or Jesus' uh, criticizers like the Pharisees or John's disciples in this case. We probably could all agree that tradition can become idolatrous. They can become an idol to us when we do it the way in which some of the people in Jesus' day were celebrating and were upholding traditions. I want to go to Numbers, the 21st chapter. And I might paraphrase some of this. I want to read a little bit of it. But Numbers, the 21st chapter, has this story. And we've, we've, we've read it before. The Israelites are in the wilderness. And just to give you a definition of an idol, an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. We know that the Bible is full of these. And even though we don't go down the street and see a bunch of idols all the time, I think the world, even in our Western culture in the United States, are still full of idols. They might not be physical, but we know that people put things on a pedestal as an object of worship, even when they don't think they are. But Numbers, the 21st chapter, verse 4, it says, And the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road up to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained, there is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. 
and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. And so we have two different parts to this or purposes. So now we have this physical monument of this poisonous snake. And we see this oftentimes on ambulances, right? Medical symbols, right? It's the, 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 the pole and the, the, the snake that wraps around it and becomes today our common symbol of medicine or emergency medical or things like that. But right here, we have this interesting new monument set up for Israel. And there's two purposes to it. Number one, to remind the Israelites of the curse that the Israel was given because of the rebelliousness. And their primary characteristic of rebelliousness, if we look at this, we all know it, it's their faith, faithlessness, uh, uh, their lack of faith. Their second sign, or the second purpose, was it was to be a sign of faith. By looking at the bronze serpent, people placed their faith in God for healing. And they could look at this monument and realize that their healing came from God. We know that switching to the New Testament, that Jesus now takes on this new connection. In John, the third chapter, verse 14 through 15, and it says, And as Moses lived up to the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we see that Jesus compares himself to the serpent as being lifted up. And we know that Jesus was lifted up on that stake, on that cross, becoming the curse for us, but also being the one that provides the healing. And the reason I brought this out was because years later, in Hezekiah's day, there becomes this period that we see the Israelites, they obviously they fall short, they start backsliding. They're all into idolatry. And they even use what was given to them to be a monument that God gave them. Something good. A, a, a good memorial re reminder. And they used it for idolatry. 2 Kings 18, verse 1-4 through 4 says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Wow. He took down that monument that Moses had made at the command of God as a reminder of Israel's curse when they were lacking faith, the rebelliousness, as well as Israel's healing by looking at it and rem being reminded that God healed them. The people took something that was good and right that was sanctioned by God and turned it into a tool of 
idolatry, which is an example of what we can do as well. We look at fasting, in Jesus' case, they used it as the center of worship, not as a tool that facilitated worship. And not only did they use fasting, they used all the other different traditions and things as well, but they used those things as like the center, as if you're serving the tradition rather than using the tradition to serve God himself. Even things God gave us, or God gives us, can be improperly used and turned into idols. The same can be said of traditions such as what Jesus dealt with and the question that John the Baptist's disciples questioned him about regarding why his disciples did not fast like the other religious leaders, Pharisees, and how John had taught them as well. So as we close, I just want us to think about that and think about the traditions, good and bad, and think about how we must be sure that we have the appropriate perspective on the traditions that we hold. That at the end of the day, the purpose of what God has set out for us is always the same. To grow in the nature and stature of Jesus Christ, grow together, wait for his kingdom to be established on this earth, preach the gospel, and be obedient, of course, which is something that all people who are trying to grow in the stature and nature of Christ is going to do, are going to try to do to the best of their ability. But remember that tradition, good and bad, it can't be our focus. It can't be the object of our worship. It just must be the tool that facilitates our worship as we worship the true God of heaven and earth and we accept and take the new wine. And remember that Jesus' teaching is that new wine. 